Welcome to Listening with Leaders. I'm Doug Noll, lawyer turned peacemaker. I teach executive leaders how to listen to emotions rather than words so that they can become the leaders everyone wants to follow. And I teach those same leaders how to be authentically present, available, and connected to their families, despite being insanely busy. I have learned that we are 98% emotional and only 2% rational. Learning how to listen to emotions is, in my experience, the foundational skill of life. Stick around to the end of the show, and I'll reveal how you can be on our next guest in 15 to 20 minutes. So let's get started. Deborah Ankerville, CEO of the Fresno Business Council for 31 years? 30. 30 years. <laughs> it's still amazing. Uh, it's still amazing. And I've known you for almost all that time. And we have, of course, worked together on lots of projects over the years. Welcome to my podcast. My audience is going to be fascinated about your story. So, so let's start off with just a little background. You are, you are from the Midwest originally. Correct. Minnesota. And yeah. it is and, part of the story for sure. Right. So tell us about your early origins and what brought you to California. Right. I mean, I think that, it, you know, the work I did in Minnesota really prepared me for the work I'm doing here because there I was a criminal defense attorney. I worked nationally in the addiction field and I led common cause for 10 years. Not exactly the bio you would expect a group of conservative white men to hire to be the CEO <laughs> of a business council. I know. And we live, we live in central California, which is pretty red. Uh, Correct. And I am like not partisan at all because having majored in philosophy, I'm just interested in what's true and what works. Uh -huh. You know, so for me, that was why Common Cause was so appealing because to me, I think it's all about being great citizens and getting, you know, coming together to solve problems together. That's the whole point. Yes. Civic stewardship has been a big theme of yours over the last three decades. Tell us a little bit more about that concept and civic leadership, becoming a civic steward. Right. I think it's central to the whole thing. Um, in ninth grade, I was exposed to the work of John Gardner, who founded Common Cause, counseled five presidents, worked for the Carnegie Foundation. He was the CEO. I mean, World War II veteran. He inspired so much of what I believe to be the American dream. This notion of, an, of valuing and the intrinsic value of everyone, collective responsibility for liberty and justice for all, the bookends. And to me, the people that understand that are people that start with gratitude, that other people were willing to risk their lives for freedom and inclusion and all the stuff that, you know, today is all suspect. Because if you weren't a perfect human being when you had a new idea, somehow it's discredited today. And I think our country was a bold experiment and it may fail. Self-governance starts with us governing ourselves. And you're to me, one of the masters of that, you know, right. if you can't de-escalate, you're a problem. <laughs> exactly correct. So, so tell us about your work as the CEO of the Fresno Business Council. What is the Fresno Business Council and, and what has been your role in the community? Right. I think, you know, it, it's become clear over time. I actually, when I left Minnesota, wrote a job description for myself, and I've never gotten one from the members of the business council. So that'll give you an idea of how innovative this group has been willing to be, because there is no map for this. In 1992, my understanding is the community hit bottom. 
and eight leaders, including the president of the business council, were like, we have to find another way to conduct the community business. And of course, they didn't know what that might look like because that wasn't their life experience. And when they hired me, one of the prominent agricultural leaders, he said, we should hire her because she's different. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I guess, you know, so there I was watching people trying to figure out how to solve symptoms of what turns out to be a devastating approach to the economy, low cost, one dominated industry, and all the problems that come from that. And you add to that Fresno's center location, being a portal for guns, gangs, contraband, you know, I come to find out later, all kinds of things, all this hard stuff concentrated in an isolated area of California. And most people didn't even know. They didn't know there was third world poverty in the middle of the state. Right. Just so listeners uh, understand the, 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 the economy we're talking about is big agriculture. And, right. And you know, like, a model that, you know, cheap food, quality food, and the one region really paid a price for that. That's right. Because there are a few people that make a lot of money and a lot of people that don't make a lot of money. Uh, right. And with undocumented, I mean, coming yeah, from were, Minnesota, I had no idea that this existed. You know, because it, it sounded like an old model of an of industry that was in the deep south. So what have you seen in over the 30 years? Have you seen uh, shifts here in the Central Valley? Oh, I think there's tremendous because, you know, bottom line for me is. There was no intention to cause harm. It was almost like bigger, faster, more was a cultural norm. Poor people moved here, created prosperity here, worked really hard. I mean, I don't want to paint anybody as a villain because I think we all do the best we can based upon our unresolved trauma and our social conditioning. And if you're not willing to confront both inside of yourself, you're, you'll likely do harm outside of yourself. So to me, I had to change in order to be effective here because judging doesn't help anybody. So, so tell me about the changes you had to go through. Well, um, Minnesota, when I was there, to just give you an idea, I mean, at the legislature, it was dominated by civic stewards. So doing the right thing for the right reason in the right way was the norm. There was a 12-step meeting room on the first floor of the state capitol. If people were acting out in some way, someone would likely do an intervention because it was kind to do that. They wouldn't talk behind their back. They would deal with it. We got legislation passed in one, one session. So much so that Archibald Cox brought members of Congress to Minnesota to find out how we did it. And what people realized, it wasn't about how at all. It was about who. Hmm. So when, when leaders leave, and so I had the opportunity to be mentored by people like Archibald Cox. You know, I mean, I think about being his chauffeur and having him tell me the history. He and John Kennedy were close friends. You know, what it was like to actually talk to somebody who lived through it and was a national icon. So I was heavily influenced by the kind of leaders that put, a, put the country first, put the state first, put the community first. And, you know, we had public financing, all the Watergate reforms, boom, right through, because doing the right thing for the right reason in the right way was smart. So how do you translate all of that when you moved to California? 
Well, it was quite a shocking contrast to me. <laughs> but see, having worked for Common Cause, I already knew a lot about California because Common Cause is a national organization. So I worked with the leaders of the different states. So I was very keenly aware that every state in the nation has different politics, cultures, policy. The fact that most people speak English doesn't change the fact that the cultures are still very different. Mm -hmm. You know, so I was somewhat tuned in, but I had no concept of the Central Valley. I mean, I thought Cesar Chavez was considered like Martin Luther King. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like one generation's heroes can be another generation's threat. And, you know, again, I don't want to paint anybody as a villain. You know, survival of the fittest was sort of a dominant worldview. And until you really think about interdependence and leaving anybody behind means you're paying for prisons, welfare, all kinds of problems. If you can't see the whole, you can't see it. Right. And so the challenge is, how do you get the people who can see it to step up and lead? Hold, up, hold that thought just one moment. So how do you go about helping getting people to see what was really behind the curtain because it sounds to me like that's really what you've been doing over the last 30 years is trying to lift the veil and, and instead of addressing the symptoms look at the causes of poverty and homelessness and all of the issues that exist in the central valley i think that's very well said and as you know i've had the privilege of working with remarkable leaders mm -hmm. i mean i think back to the early days um a number of them are now deceased but they basically protected me because you got to know, I sounded very odd. <laughs> you know, what to me was obvious. <clears throat> right. You know, to right. other people sounded insane, you know, or naive. And I'm anything but naive. Um, but because we had these pillars of the community who clearly saw we needed to do something different, Bob Duncan, James Hallowell, Dick Johansson, and John Welty were like the cornerstones of a foundation we laid back in 1993, and each iteration of presidents have taken it to another level. And, you know, having the capacity of people who think vis with visionary skills, like Pete Weber, Fortune 500 CEO, shows up, retires early here, takes this work on with a vengeance, he's still at it. Their capacity to look and craft comprehensive strategies and their ability to mobilize teams and get things done. I mean, I don't know any other sector that is as capable of doing that. And that's why before he died, John Gardner said, do not leave business out. Right. And I believed that. So my issue was, how do you get business to engage and explain to them this is smart and it's in your self-interest? And, and you were, you've been very successful at doing that. How did you, how did you go about it? Well, what I learned early on is they needed to say it to their peers because they would never hear me. I mean, I don't, I don't have business. I don't have that mindset of a business person. I'm a philosopher, basically. Um, but I'm also committed to action and getting things done. It's just I'm not willing to spend my time and effort on treating symptoms because to me, that's easy. What's hard? Transformation. Hmm. So for me, it's always been about that. And today, more and more people recognize it's smart. The past is gone. You can be a refugee holding on to that, or you can just be an immigrant in this new world that's emerging. 
and create what, what we all want, you know, because most humans, I mean, they just want to live in peace and harmony and have enough and, you know, be challenged to create or whatever. It's just that societies weren't ready to do that. So um, I know that we worked on some pretty major projects together many years ago. And I, I, as I look back now, I think we were way ahead of ourselves. <laughs> you think? <laughs> you know, it all came crashing down on top of us because people weren't ready for the changes. But but you're seeing today that what we imagined, especially with dealing with homelessness and addictive disorder uh, and, and the problems of deep poverty and addiction are now coming back in an even grander way than we could have even possibly imagined. Absolutely. I mean, when I worked for Community Intervention, which was the national firm working at addiction, the big concern in communities was marijuana. Now kids are dying of fentanyl. That's right. I mean, how bad does it have to get where it's our kids? Because it used to be those kids. Right. Those people. And now it's right in people's rooms. Exactly. Um, So what were some of the barriers? I mean, we were talking, we talked before about misogyny, for example. Tell me about that and other barriers that you had to overcome in order to to be an effective change leader in the community. Well, I I have these metaphors I use that may offend people or may not. I don't know. I think of golden handcuffs. When you've been socially conditioned to measure success based upon metrics other people defined that don't align with your integrity. And I was one of the lucky lawyers that discovered that young when I was the clever young lawyer that came up with the arguments to get an incest perpetrator off and sent two little girls home with a monster. I quit. (laughs) I became a waitress. So I know the price in a very visceral way of doing things. Because I know I didn't do anything wrong. I mean, even the prosecutor said, Deb, you did your job. And she and I went to the legislature to try and change the statute of limitations. So, you know, but what I realized about myself is I wanted to win more than I wanted justice. And I knew if I stayed on that path, I would forget that sharp knowing. And then on the other side, I call them iron shackles, where you've, if you've experienced deep trauma, marginalization, you know, assaults, whatever, you can internalize, I'm a victim. And if you do that, you're no longer a creator and you're beholden to the people around you. You're dependent, you blame, you're angry. And I think of that as iron shackles. Mm-hmm. Well, people with that, there are a whole bunch of people that will treat their symptoms, but they can't see them and help them break free. And so as someone who had to go through that as well, I'm one of those that have lived experience got out. That's a different person than lived experience commiserate or, geez, I'm glad that didn't happen to me. I'll help, you know. And then we don't change, well, how did it happen? Why did we allow this? Why are so many children being abused? Why are so many women suffering with domestic violence? You know, why don't we trust each other anymore? You start asking yourself these questions and you realize, well, we need to change. We need to become the change that, you know, if you want to live in a safe, trustworthy world, be that way. It's the best you can do. I can't fix anybody else. But I can certainly take responsibility for me. And you can model how you think people should be by your own behavior and actions in the community. Absolutely. And, and I have found 
and people have said this to me, they said, Deb, when you're around, people either see it as a relief or a threat. <laughs> I'll say it, I, you know, because like in my mind, it's like, don't people want, you know, and it's not that I'm always right by any means, but if you don't share the truth you see, we're all blind because we all see through our lens, right? Right. So I want everyone to say, well, what do you really see so we can see what the elephant looks like? What 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 do you think has been the most gratifying aspect of the work you've done over the last 30 years? The relationships and the trust that I've started to experience with others, because um, much of my time here, I didn't let myself feel much of anything. Hmm. And that's part of the reason I kept going. It's not that I'm brave. It's just that I didn't, I didn't feel the fear. I just, you know, some of us are masters at dissociation. Well, now I'm doing a lot of hot yoga. And so now I feel everything in real time. And the women stepping up now, I mean, we've got really remarkable, this, these next generations of men and women. Um, it, I just see the change happening. So I'm grateful that I've stayed long enough to see that happening and ideas that used to sound like when you and I were, you know, boomers are like, wow, you know, and then everyone else is going, who are you? You know, I mean, but Gen X is going, yeah, those boomers were spot on, but the culture wasn't ready. Right. I know it's been a long slog. Uh, so what do you see for the future? Well, the thing that I have had in my mind for a very long time is that Fresno is a demonstration site for transformational change, profound healing, recognizing the assets we already have, building on this incredible base of ag regenerative agriculture, all the innovations in, in advanced manufacturing, um, addressing the inclusion, transforming education so that no one's left behind because we can be intentional with technology now. I mean, there's so many tools. If we can do it, because one of our national consultants used to say, Fresno's writing my third book. Remember Doug Henton? Oh, yeah. Because you know, we were doing it, you know, and then I met some remarkable people at a National Governors Association think tank meeting years ago. One was Fred Keller, Cascade Engineering in um, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Well, he created a way for employers to help their employees in real time, get them off welfare for, so they don't get, you know, so that they didn't get in the maze. Super successful. Well, his mentee has been here twice and we're replicating the model now hmm. because we were ready to do it. The other person I met was Mauricio Lim Miller, who found a new way to deal with poverty by investing in people and seeing their strengths. And he just sent me something last week. So I've reconnected with him as well. And I saw these as the two pillars. What can business do to address social and intractable issues? And how do we treat people that have had difficult histories? Not treat their symptoms, but honor their incredible scrappy strengths and invest in them. You know, so that to me, those are two pillars that elevate this foundation that we started years ago. It, it's, it strikes me that, and I, I recall in our early years, that um, there were a lot of people in the social justice movement here in the Valley that were openly critical and hostile towards business, being involved in community work. Tell us a little bit about that and how that shifted. 
Well, it's still challenging. And um, the reason I think is because people look at the shadow side of business, not the strengths. It's sort of like people that don't want manufacturing. I might say to them, do you want a refrigerator? Do you want somebody who knows how to fix the refrigerator? Because they don't, they are economically illiterate in terms of understanding how an economy happens. So, and a lot of business people are socially illiterate. They don't understand the others. You know, so for me, it's it's this idea of, you know what, you need the doers, the thinkers and feelers working together on one team. And until you have enough people who have integrated all those att attributes, you better have a team that has everybody. And so we've just been practicing earning trust, being more patient. Doers don't like to feel or think, right? I mean, right. You know, so they make fun of those two. And it's sort of like, well, if you don't have thinkers, you might be going down the wrong road and not even know what you're doing. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? and if you don't have feelers, you're missing 98% of what it means to be human. And look at Star Trek. Now yeah. with well, Picard, was, yeah. you know, he's actually, because he brought the empath, he's an action thinker. He brings an empath on the bridge and now the new show is talking about why he doesn't have feelings. Huh. <laughs> it's very, because I love Star Trek. So I thought, because I think a lot of these people showed us, whether through music or all kinds of writing, have said, told us all this stuff. It's just how you hear it. Right. Huh. So what do you see for uh, the future? I mean, you're not going to be doing this forever. So what, 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 what comes after you in terms of community transformation? Well, the, the team that we now have, like, it's not just me anymore. We have Kurt Madden, Janelle Taylor-Cumpy, Kendra Rogers, now Devasian. We're all CEOs, one team with our own portfolio, leveraging our assets to move all kinds of pieces forward at once. And so some of these initiatives go right into the poverty industrial complex, some in education some in business, because we have a manufacturing alliance that's up to 1,400 members now. And they're not all business, they're partners because they're led by civic stewards. Business is getting smart. You, when you lead as a civic steward, you have real partners that want you to win. You know, so to me, as we keep going forward, the next challenge is we are over-regulated, under-led at the state and federal level. Because of years of patch jobs, one-off stuff, full-time, you know, unless you have strategic leaders, visionary leaders driving an ecosystem to a new space, you're going to just keep playing bumper cars. So how do you, I mean, I love the, I love the thought that we're over-regulated and under-led. You know, how does a region like Central California, which is the fifth largest region in the state by population, it's also the poorest region in the state by economic development. How does it gain influence in the state capital with the leg legislature and the governor's office? Well, it's funny. It's a perfect question because New California Coalition formed from L.A. and the Bay Area, and they invited us to join as a chapter. And we agreed to do it if it was led as civic stewardship. And so... We are now mobilizing and working together. Our region is center stage for a lot of reasons, largely due to Ashley Swearingen, because there's a major initiative called Drive that is pulling together a bunch of pieces to address social equity issues, inclusive prosperity, inclusive economic development. There's a mirror image in Inland Empire. 
these are the two regions that when they're together, it's like, what are the common realities? And because we've been part of the California Stewardship Network for years, the leader down there and I are colleagues, you know, so there's all these connections of going, you can't leave a region of your state out because it spreads. And one of the leaders in the Bay I, I was in a conference and he said, how could we be this smart and have allowed this to happen? And I said, you've hit rock top. We hit rock bottom. Right. Now you get it. So the people that hit rock top. Silicon Valley. You know, exactly. <laughs> it's the same problem. But, you know, it's like pedagogy of the oppressed. Paula Freire's work. Right, right. right. If, you, if you're at this level of thinking, whether you're rich or poor, it's this level of thinking. Both have to change. And is it, do you think of getting traction in government to see that at the state level? Well, right at the moment, think about we the people coming together with solutions to the legislature with a coalition broad-based. It's like we're not coming single interests, one-off, quick patches, special favors. We're saying this is what we the people want, and they can take credit for it. And it's the way we lobbied at Common Cause. We, I mean, I got. I mean, everybody would say, "Oh, yeah, we want to do the right thing." You know, so we've come to the legislature with a solution. Who wants to be against us, right? It's the same principles applied to substantive issues. And is the legislature responding? Well, we'll find out. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, what's happening now? Like with a lot more Hispanics who want their own companies, they want it. You know, there's an illusion that people want to redistribute wealth rather than create their own. Well, redistribution means you're dependent on somebody else. Right. Nobody wants that. Not really. If they get, right. you know, so for me, it's all about how do we create a model where everyone is accountable and we have compassion. We meet people where they're at, but we're aimed to the future, not the past. Mm -hmm. And that those are the healing techniques that neuroscience and, you know, neural pathways, we understand better today why it matters to create safe spaces for little kids. So their brains don't turn into the life is dangerous. We live in a hostile universe thing. Right, which drives them into gangs and violence. Which exactly. Which leads to the work that I do in prisons, right. Exactly. Why would you trust anybody when you were left behind? Why would you be loyal to a country that marginalized you? Right. So, you know, to me, it's like all those of us that have had the courage to hang in the shadow, I learned so much from criminal clients. And I realized a lot of the lawyers were not as healthy and kind as my clients. It's just my clients, as you all know, didn't do well with anger and rage. Right. <laughs> and they would do things that would get them into trouble. Right. Exactly. All right. One more question, then we'll wrap it up. So you've had a, a fascinating career and you've done a lot of great work in the region. But what's the one thing about yourself that we wouldn't know about unless you told us? <laughs> you know, I saw that question. And I was thinking to myself, you know, I thought when I got, call it well or whatever, whatever, I would get to live in the woods in an ashram. And, have to do <laughs> and as it turns out, the opposite is true. All of a sudden, you have all these relationships. I kind of like it, but I still have that part of me that just wants to be in the woods because I kind of grew up in the woods. You want to re eventually retreat. I, I guess. Sit or in the cabin and watch the lake. It, well, there you go. You and know, because I was a wilderness guide. That's why 
I don't need a map because right. when you're a wilderness guide, you better trust your compass. Exactly. Well, this has been a great conversation, Deb. Thank you so it's much. It's been good to see us. you, Doug. And um, we'll catch up soon. Okay, great. Doug Knoll here. Thank you so much for listening to Listening with Leaders. If you are a successful executive leader who would like to be on this program, please visit podcast.dougnoll.com slash podcast. If you got something out of this interview, would you please share this episode on social media? Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on the social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag listening with leaders. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. Want to know more? Go to my website, dougnoll.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. That's at Douglas E. Noel. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next show.